on Facebook, and he said, Ed, I just want to make sure if the world ended and, and, and I'm the only one left, did the rapture happen? And so I messaged him back, said, we're really enjoying it here in paradise. The great news is there's a, there's a muddy butter, uh, what do they call it, buddy mutter race tomorrow. Unfortunately, we cannot find your registration. So I thought, if you know Eric, you would get that. He's, just, he's hilarious to me. You know, on the 21st, right before Christmas, the world was supposed to end according to the Mayan calendar. The uh, sun was to go black, uh, and, uh, and, and, and the planets were to align. The earth was going to explode. Uh, we were going to be run into by, by a secret planet, probably Nibiru. And the poles, the magnetic poles of the earth were going to flip-flop, so we were going to get all blacked out. And, and it didn't happen. And, you know, that's not the first time that the end of the world has been predicted. I, I didn't come to Christ until 1969, but in 1974, there was a book that swept the country. It was called The Jupiter Effect. Uh, last year, a little old Bible teacher who otherwise is very much a good teacher, his name is Harold Camping, he predicted that the world would end in 2011, in May. Uh, he'd also predicted in 94 and 95 it was going to happen. never happen. Pat Robertson, who ran for president, predicted that the world was going to end in the year 1982. Uh, Tim LaHaye and, and Jerry Jenkins, two of my favorite authors, wrote the Left Behind series, which I really like. Uh, they, when, the, when we turned the calendar to 2000, remember that Y2K thing? That was just amazing. Everybody thought the world was going to end because the computers were all going to, uh, to shut down. But rest assured, it will, it will be predicted again. A guy named Ronald Wineland, who's a Church of God pastor, had, had predicted that the world would end this year on May 27th. Uh, he's, he's revised his prediction until May of 2013. So at least we have that to look, to look forward to. My wife and I this summer, we were uh, visiting around and, and we watched a show with my youngest son. It was called Doomsday Preppers. Have you seen that show? That just cracks me up. I mean, there was a people who were otherwise intelligent people. They were ready for a cataclysmic end of the world, and they were preparing for the smallpox epidemic that would kill 90% of the population. They were going through a, a real-time evacuation drill. They lived near New York City, and they, they, they had to get everything to their compound out in the mountains outside of New York City, and they had food, they had potable water, uh, they got out there, and they had, uh, they had armaments, of course. They had uh, barbed wire fences. They had everything except the one thing they really needed, and that was the vaccine against smallpox. And so although there was enough smallpox vaccine in every major city to vaccinate everybody right away within two days, uh, they were in trouble. And, and it always comes back to this. If you're into that thing, and listen, I, you know, I'm not going to tell anybody how to live, but... The, the Bible usually says when, when it talks about the end of the world, and the world is going to end, this is not the real deal. This is kind of the spring training for the regular season. Uh, everything is baseball to me. But the world is going to end. But in every passage that we're told that Jesus is coming back and the earth is going to end, it will be destroyed, this place that we know as Lakeland. Uh, we're, in the very next passage, we're told, therefore, how to live. And we're never told to run to the mountains and hide food and have a waterbed full of potable water. You know, we're told there's some things to do if you know your world is going to come to an end, and such was the case in the life of Jesus. Perhaps more than anybody that ever lived, Jesus knew that his world was coming to an end. And the last night on earth, way back 2,000 years ago, knowing that he was going to die, he did something pretty amazing, and he gave us some marching orders that will answer the question to today's 
sermon message topic. You know, the message topic is this. So the Mayans were wrong. Now what do we do? Well, when Jesus was here, he gathered his disciples to an upper room, and he was going to celebrate a great meal with them. So I'm pretty excited about that because, you know, if the world was going to end tomorrow, one thing I'd want to do is eat, you can tell. I mean, I've lost weight, but I still really like to eat. I'm looking forward to eating all day on uh, New Year's Eve and New Year's Day, and then I start my diet again on the 2nd. Isn't that how that works? John 13, Jesus is with his followers for the last time. These are his buds. These are his best men. These are the guys that he spent the better part of three years living with. And it says, now before the feast of the Passover, the Passover was the New Year's celebration in the time of Jesus. The Passover was really two holidays in one for the Jews. It was first and foremost their New Year's Eve. It was also their Independence Day. In the Old Testament, God said, make this the beginning of months for you. And it marked the time when as a nation they were set free from their bondage as slaves in Egypt for 400 years. And the way that worked was God sent a whole bunch of plagues, disasters, kind of like we see now, tsunamis, earthquakes, miserable stuff. He sent that on the Egyptians. The, the most awful plague was the Passover plague. And the Jews were then to hide under the shed blood of a lamb. They were to sacrifice a lamb and smear it over the doorposts, enter into the benefits of the shed blood of the lamb, and eat together as a family. There's a special meal that goes on today in the Jewish homes called the Paschal or the Passover meal. And so it's that night when the Jews look forward to a new year and they look at the beginning of their independence as a nation that Jesus is going to do this. It says, Jesus, knowing that his hour had come, his hour was it, his, it was his end of the world. His, his mind catastrophe was upon him. In the next few hours, he was going to depart out of this world to the Father. Having loved his own who were in the world, he loved them to the end. During supper, which is about a two-hour meal, he, I'm sorry, during supper, the devil, having already put into the heart of Judas Iscariot, the son of Simon, to betray Jesus, Jesus does this. Next slide, please. Next slide, please. Knowing that the Father had given all things into his hands and that he'd come forth from God and was going back to God, got up from supper, laid aside his garments, and taking a towel, girded himself about. Then he poured water into a basin and began to wash the disciples' feet and to wipe them with the towel with which he was girded. So again, knowing that his world was about to end and knowing that he could spend one last night with his key friends and followers, he decided to celebrate the Passover meal with them and to get them ready for the meal, he washed their feet. He did what is the ultimate act of service. He did what the host should do at a meal where people are invited in. In the Jewish world, it is up to the host to make sure the feet are washed. In fact, in some denominations, this is where uh, foot washing comes from and it's a part of the communion service. I love to do that once in a while. We're going to take communion. It's pretty special to be able to wash one another's feet. It's a very humbling thing to do. It's the most difficult thing to do if you have pride in you. And here's Jesus who was God, who has, you know, we just celebrated Christmas. He was God, come to earth, lived a perfect life. If anybody had reason to be proudful, it was Jesus. And here he is showing the most humility I can imagine. He strips down to, to his undergarment and he takes a towel and he takes a basin and he washes feet. Now these are feet that are living in a dirty land wearing sandals. You know, there's not a lot of concrete in Jerusalem 2,000 years ago. These are fishermen. These are tax collectors. These are guys that live 
with robes and sandals. And in order to ceremonially cleanse them for the meal, Jesus does that. And then he says in that same passage, for I gave you an example. Read that. For I gave you an example that you also should, I, should do as I did to you. Ejemplo? Did I get that right, Eric? All right. In Spanish. In Espanol, ejemplo. Example. Jesus says, this is what I want you to be about. If you know your world is going to end, and our world is going to end someday, this is what I want you to do until that happens. I want you to find people who have dirty feet, and I want you to wash those feet. Now, that can be literal. I think it can also be metaphorical. Because serving is what foot washing is about. I think it starts at home. If you want to be a great mom or a great dad... The way you do that is you get to serve your family. I'm at my best as a husband when I serve my wife. I'm at my best as a dad when I serve my children. I'm at my best as an employee when I serve my boss. I'm at my best when I look around our neighborhood and say, who needs help here? Who's got dirty feet that I can serve? That's what being the hands and feet of Jesus is about. It's looking around and saying, who has dirty feet here? And what can I do to make that happen to get better? My favorite people to serve and the people that I think are blown away when you serve them are unbelievers. That's one of the things that I'm really focused on. Who, who do I get to serve that are unbelievers? I have lunch every week with a, with a number of my buddies, and, and I call them my pagan friends, and they get a kick out of that. And, you know, a lot of times I'll just buy their lunch. It's just a way to serve them. And we'll talk about sports, and we'll talk about this, and we'll talk about that. But, you know, last week one of them had a parent die. And you know what we're talking about this week? What happens to the parent that dies? You know, it takes a while to get to that point where people trust you, but they trust you because you serve them. That's hard because it's, we live in a world that doesn't honor servants. You know, we're going to have Times Man of the Year and Sports Illustrated's Man and Woman of the Year and everybody's Person of the Year. Generally speaking, the people that get the big honors are not being honored because of their service. And yet that's when we are at our best. God has created us to serve. My old mentor, Dr. Howard Hendricks, used to say it well. You know, he would say, birds fly, fish swim, but people were created to serve. We are at our best when we're serving others. And that, for me, runs counter to my nature. I don't want to serve. I'm a selfish creature. I want to be waited on. I want you to do for me. We had a very great time of that this week. I got sick. When I get sick, I don't want to do anything for anybody. I want my wife to take care of me because I'm selfish. Oh, I can crank it out for a while. Maybe an hour I can be a good servant. But there is that in me that wants to be taken care of because serving is hard. But you know what? Jesus lived in a world where serving was hard as well. You know, the world is not that much different from when Jesus lived. Circumstances don't change, but people, I'm sorry, circumstances change, but people don't change. In the early part of Jesus' ministry during week one, John chapter one, 12 chapters before Chapter 13, it says the next day, that's the next day of his ministry, he purposed to go into Galilee, and he found Philip, and Jesus said to him what? And Jesus said to him what? 
Now Philip was from Bethsaida of the city of Andrew and Peter. Next, please. And Philip found Nathanael and said to him, We have found him of whom Moses in the law and also the prophets wrote, Jesus of Nazareth, the son of Joseph. Nathanael said to him, Can any good thing come out of Nazareth? Now think about that. Sometimes someone somewhere will give you a hard time about your hometown. Where do you come from? You know, well, I came from Bartow. Anybody from Bartow? I'm sorry. We call it Bartow, you know. Polk City, anybody from Polk City? Oh, that's a dump. You know, anybody here from Mulberry? We'll pray for you. You know, Nazareth was like, <laughs> Nazareth was like the Mulberry of Israel. Nobody liked Mulberry. It's not the end of the world, but you can see it from Mulberry. You know, I came from Pennsylvania. I, I hate cold weather like we have this morning. And I moved down here with my family. My family moved here in '67. And, and I consider myself a Floridian. I eat grits, and I say you all, and I root for the, for the South in the war between the states. There was nothing civil about that war. It was the war of northern aggression. Amen? <laughs> but there are still people in Lakeland that think I'm a Yankee. In fact, there are many people who think I should not be called a Yankee without the, using the descriptive adjective that comes before the word Yankee. Sooner or later, someone will say, where you're from isn't, oh, where you go to school isn't good enough. All my kids went to Florida State. Florida State gets to play Northern Illinois in a major bowl game. What's up with that? You know, the people of Florida State say, can any good thing come out of Gainesville? No. And the people from Gainesville say, can anything good come out of Tallahassee? No. And the people from Tallahassee and Gainesville can say, can any good thing come out of Miami? No. Eric's from Miami. His brother is a tail gunner on a bread truck down there. <laughs> you see, Jesus lived in a place that knew about crappy towns. Can any good thing come out? Of no, nothing can good come out. So now Jesus goes home. And you would think when he gets to Nazareth, all the people from Nazareth would be... We, oh, we've got to hang together. We've got to love each other, bro, because they all hate us out there. They did hate him. So Mark 6, Jesus goes to his hometown, Nazareth, and his disciples followed him. And when the Sabbath came, he began to teach in the synagogue, and the many listeners were astonished, saying, where did this man get these things, and what is this wisdom given to him by, and such miracles as these performed by his hands? Is this not the carpenter? The son of Mary and the brother of James and Joseph and Judas and Simon are not his sisters here with us, and they, read that, took offense at him. You see, it's hard to be a servant because sometimes they don't like your hometown. And in your hometown, <clears throat> Jesus goes there, they don't like that he's a carpenter. Has anyone ever said what you do isn't good enough? Sure they have. You know, we, we hear it all the time. Those that can do and those that can't, what? teach. Those of us that teach, you know, if, if you know a good teacher, you know a person that works very hard. But the, the teachers are always seen in a very poor light. We pay them poorly. We, we overwork them. We, we've taken paddles out of the classroom. <laughs> I could never be in the classroom. I'd be in jail. <laughs> Doctors. Ah, they're just in it for the money. Not anymore you're not. 
Lawyers. Bunch of lying thieves. Preachers. You only work one day a week. It's a pretty good gig, you know. <laughs> See, sooner or later, someone will say what you do isn't good enough. You're a student. What? Go get a job. What are you studying? I'm studying something, something, something management. What does that mean? I, I met a psychology major. She's getting her master's in psychology. She can be unemployed on two levels. You see, sooner or later, someone will say what you do isn't good enough. And if all you are known for is what you do, it's hard to be a servant. And, and men are really the big, the big deals at this. You know, when you meet a new person, you say, hi, I'm Ed. First thing I ask, what do you do? I'm a banker. Oh, man, you, you don't work many hours at all, do you? And people just get in line and just bring you money. If that's what you're known for, your hometown or your school, or what you do, sooner or later you will be disappointed and it will be hard to be a servant. Or your family. Are not his sisters here? You know, do you know Jesus had a big family? He was the oldest of at least seven children. They're mentioned here. They're mentioned in a couple of places in the Scripture. Hard family to be a part of. I've mentioned this before. Imagine having Jesus in your family as the perfect oldest child. You know, whenever Jesus hits his thumb in the carpenter's shop with a hammer, he doesn't say a bad word. He said, oh, praise me. <laughs> I'm sure Jesus made all A's. I'm sure Jesus never had to go to the office. I had two younger sisters, and uh, if I did well in class and then the, the teacher had them the next year, it was like, oh, you're Ed's sister. But if I got in trouble, which every once in a while I did, they, oh, you're Ed's sister. I don't know which you are. Maybe you are the Jesus of your family and people hate you for that. Maybe you have a Jesus in your family and you hate him for that. Either way, you're not washing feet. So your hometown may not be good enough. Your vocation may not be good enough. Your family may not be good enough. So now Jesus starts his ministry and as he passed by, Mark 2, he saw Levi, the son of Alphaeus, sitting in the tax booth. And he said to him, follow me. And he got up and followed him. Now, Levi was a tax collector. They were hated so bad they couldn't get into heaven. The theologians said if you're a tax collector, you can't get in because you are Jews who work for the Roman occupiers and you were, uh, treason was unacceptable. You couldn't get to heaven. And then of all things, it happened that he was reclining at table in Levi's house. And as you would expect, many tax collectors and sinners were dining with Jesus and his disciples. So Jesus is in the middle of the worst dregs of humanity and the religious leaders, the scribes of the Pharisees, saw that he was eating with the sinners and tax collectors. They said to his disciples, why is he eating and drinking with the tax collectors and sinners? This is the one I love. You know, it, it, it's, it's just, Jesus has a hard time in his world because of his hometown and his job and his family, but his friends aren't good enough either. You know, Jesus was called on several occasions a friend of sinners. I love that. I love I I want that on my tombstone. But you know, it's not easy being a friend of sinners because the people who are in church don't get that sometimes. Oh, we get it around here. But people who don't know what I do and don't know where my heart is think, oh, he's down there having lunch with his pagan friends. That's what I do. That's what I love. They're my people. You know, they never let me down the way Christians do. 
I have no expectations for them. Sometimes they're the easiest feet to wash because I, I expect nothing in return. If you are known for anything external, what team you play on, what your average is, what your record would be, what your bottom line is in your business, what your bank account is, what your street address is, at some point in time, you are going to be in trouble because it will let you down. People will say it's not good enough, and that makes it really hard to be a servant. But here's a verse that I want to go back to. John 3, John 13, verse 3. Before Jesus ever washed a foot in verses 4 and 5, Jesus knew something from verse 3. I'm going to teach you here a principle called the principle of consecutive order. Say that, the principle of consecutive order. Uh, there's no charge for this. This is what you learn in seminary. In every single chapter of every single book of the entire Bible, verse 3 comes immediately before verses 4 and 5. The principle of consecutive order. But here's the deal. Before Jesus ever washed a foot in verses 4 and 5, <clears throat> he had to be aware of some things in verse 3. Watch it, what he had to be aware of. Jesus, last night with his disciples, knowing that he could tell them anything, knowing that he was gone the next day, wanted them to get this. Get this, men. Knowing that the Father had given all things into his hands and that he'd come forth from God and was going back to God, then he took a towel, girded himself, and washed feet. Jesus was equipped in a way to serve in a hostile place so that he could continually serve and give us an example as how we should be equipped. Before you ever can wash feet, you have to be aware of some things about yourself that are also true of Jesus. And I want to put these in chronological order. The first thing is Jesus knew that he'd come forth from God. He knew where he was from. Second, he knew what he was worth. The Father had given all things into his hands. And third, he knew where he was headed. He was headed back to God. And those three things are the outline for the rest of our time together. Jesus was sure of his identity, he was sure of his dignity, and he was sure of his security. Would you say those three words with me? He was sure of his identity, he was sure of his dignity, and he knew his security. The great thing is in the New Testament, as you study it, we have that same identity and that same dignity and that same security as Jesus. When my family first moved to Lakeland in 1967, we were in the, in the midst of the space race. And I used to love, my parents lived in the highlands, and you could watch on the, on the days, back then it wasn't the Apollo, it was the Gemini craft, they would blast off into the, into the space, and you could see them all the way from here to Cape Canaveral. And then when Apollo, what was it, 9 landed on the moon? What landed on the moon the first time? Neil Armstrong. 11. Apollo 11 landed on the moon. I was, I was glued to the television. It was black and white, and it was blurry, but I was there. I mean, I love the space race. I think we're the worst as a nation because we don't do that stuff anymore. That's another, that's another talk. There was so much incredible technology that had to be dealt with to go to the moon. We've actually been to the moon. We could go back. There's stuff that we left there. Remember those dune, dune buggies? 
They're solar powered. I'm guessing they still work. If you could get to the moon, you could bring one back and run it around New Smyrna Beach. When the astronauts landed on the moon, they had some big decisions to make because the moon is hundreds of degrees hot on the sunny side, hundreds of degrees cold on the dark side, not enough gravity to do much with, and no water and no breathable oxygen. So how do we solve these problems? How do we take this hostile place and allow our astronauts to succeed there? We might have sent great bubbles ahead, made bubbles of oxygen. We might have tried to change the lunar surface. But rather than change the environment, rather we equipped each individual astronaut with a backpack that gave them cooling, that gave them water, that gave them the ability to withstand ultraviolet rays, that gave them the ability... Remember how they, how, they, how they moved around on the moon? They hopped. I couldn't do that three months ago. And they hopped in long... Remember what else they did up there? They hit golf balls. They picked up rocks. They drove the dune buggy and burned rubber on it. I don't know if burn rubber on the moon is the right word. They, did, they had fun. There. See, they not only were in a hostile place doing a difficult job, they were successful and they enjoyed it. And that's what I think God wants from us. See, our world is going to end. But until it does, I believe we are called by God to go out into our hostile environment, do a very important job of serving, because we are equipped not only to be able to do it, we're equipped to do it and enjoy it. Being a Christian is the most fun thing. If you understand that being a Christian involves serving with the equipment that God's given you. God has given us a new identity. Did you know that? That if you belong to Jesus, you have a new identity. In John chapter 1 and verse 12, I want you to remember your identity. But as many as received him, the him is Jesus, as many as received Jesus, to them he gave the right to become children of God, even to those who believe in his name. Believe and receive are synonymous in that verse. If you have received Christ, if you have asked Christ to come into your life, to forgive your sin, to be your Savior, because his death on the cross is payment and payment alone for your sin, then you have received him and you have a new identity. For the first time, you have the right to be what? A child of God. It really doesn't matter what your last name is. It really doesn't matter where you've been to school. It really doesn't matter even if you're from Mulberry. You can be from Mulberry and be a child of the king of the universe. I do love this time of year when it does get cold because you can see more of the stars. And I love to look up into the universe that God has made for us, and I love to say, you know how cool the constellations are? My dad made those. Oh, I love my earthly dad. I see him once in a while. He still lives here in Lakeland. But I now have a new identity. I'm Ed Diaz. I am a son of the king of the universe. And if I'm a son of the king or a daughter of the king, as you ladies are that know Jesus, you are royalty. And when you remember that you are royalty, that your identity is secure in Christ, you can then look around and say, okay, I'm good about who I am. What can I do to help who you are? It helps me to be a better dad, a better husband, a better neighbor, a better worker, a better boss, a better friend. Because I don't have to worry about me. It's not about me anymore. My identity is secure. I don't have to worry about me. I have a new identity. I'm a child of the king. Second, in Christ I also have a new dignity. My worth is taken care of. Ephesians 1, one of my favorite passages, it talks about the Father 
It talks about the Son. It talks about the Holy Spirit. Many passages don't mention all three persons of the Godhead. But in Ephesians 1, we learn this, that blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ who has blessed us, read this with me, with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places in Christ. Do you know that every blessing God gave to Jesus, God has given to you and me as his children? Wow. And that whole passage, Ephesians 1, if you want a good study before you start your Bible reading program on January 1, tomorrow read Ephesians 1. The Father has ordained us. He has predestined us to be his children. He has adopted us into his family. The Son has redeemed us. He has given his life for us. And the Holy Spirit has sealed us forever. We have a new worth. It's not about my bank account. It's not about my 401K. It's not about the job that I have or the, <clears throat> the title that I have at my job. It's not about how many kids I have or don't have. It's not about who I'm married to or the neighborhood I live in. My worth comes from the fact that God has given me the same blessings that he's given Jesus. I was teaching through Ephesians once with my good friend uh, who's a builder, Rick Strawbridge, and Rick said, you know, it's almost like in eternity there's a balance scale. He said, and if you think about it that way, he said, on, on one part of the balance scale, uh, imagine that I'm there. What has God put on this side of the balance scale to equal what I am? Jesus. Now, I don't have a verse for this, and I don't want you to think that I do, but I think it's true. I believe it's true with all my heart that if you were the only person ever to have been born on the planet, if you were the only one on this side of the scale, God says, you know, I love you so much that I'm going to send Jesus, my perfect son, to die just for you. Because that's what a balanced scale does. It shows what something is worth on the other side, doesn't it? Isn't that great to know how much God loves you? And he loves you that way from the foundation of the earth. He knew you were going to come. He knew you were going to be his child. And he loves you so much that he sent Jesus to be your sacrifice. And all you've got to do is step, step up and say, I want that. You have a new identity in Christ. You're a child of the king. You have a new dignity in Christ. You're worth God's sacrifice of his only perfect son. And lastly, you have a new security. Jesus not only knew that he'd been sent forth from God, he knew he was going back to God. He wasn't from Nazareth, and he wasn't from Bethlehem, and he wasn't from Jerusalem, and he wasn't from Galilee. Jesus was from God. And in Romans chapter 8, Paul asks the most important question in that book. He says, who will separate us from the love of Christ? Will tribulation or distress or persecution or famine or nakedness or peril or sword or marital trouble, or mental illness, or divorce, or disobedient child, or the economy which is unstable, or Obamacare, or the fiscal cliff? Is there anything that can separate you from the love of God? That's a great question to ask in this day and age because people need to be loved. I believe all of the emphasis we see on all these movies on uh, werewolves and The Hobbit there, it's a hunger in our culture that says we want to know the supernatural answers. And as Christians, we have the supernatural answers. And they get around it, and it's close, and they dabble, and they're this and they're that, but they're not right. The right answer is only Christ gives us the supernatural answers. And so Paul then quotes an Old Testament passage that I'm going to preach from at the end of uh, the, next, the next time I preach, the end of January. He says, I'm convinced in three verses, that neither death nor life, 
nor angels, nor principalities, nor things present, nor things to come, nor powers, nor height, nor depth. And then I think he got tired of writing here. So he said, nor any other created thing, read this with me, will be able to separate us from the love of God, which is in Christ Jesus our Lord. How long are you going to be with Jesus? Forever and ever. When I remember my backpack, that I have a new identity in Christ, I am a child of the King, that I am worth the sacrifice of God's only Son, and that I will be in heaven with Him for all of eternity, I am now free to ask the question, who has dirty feet here? Because I can serve, not because of who I am, but because of the way God has equipped me. I like to watch boxing. It's a sin. One of my favorite boxing matches was in the, in the 70s. It was between Mike Weaver and a guy named John Tate. The fights back then were not paid for you. You got to watch for free on your black and white TV. And on a Friday night fight night brought to you by Gillette Television from Knoxville, Tennessee, the home of John Tate, 17,000 screaming fans were in the, in the auditorium screaming his name, Big John Tate! Big John Tate. Scream that with me. Big John Tate. John Tate was a large African-American man. He was, a, he was a man. And he was fighting Mike Weaver. So right away I decided I would do the wise thing. I was pulling for Mike Weaver. Back in those days, men were men, and they fought for 15 rounds. None of this 12-round business. And in the first Weaver, uh, round, ding, Weaver went out to, to box John Tate, and John Tate just kept punching him right in the nose. Jab, jab jab, jab, and he lost the first round. My guy was losing. And in the second round, same thing, jab, jab, and then he threw a couple of rights and he was losing. And in the third round, bang, 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 and he lost the third round. In the fourth round, in the fifth round, Mike Weaver landed a combination, I'm sorry, John Tate landed a combination on my fighter's jaw, and he went down. In the fifth round, he was behind five rounds to zero, and if I'd have been in his corner, I'd have been screaming, Mike, Mike, stay down. Don't get up. You're losing. He's just going to hit you again. But you know, Mike Weaver staggered to his feet. He finished the fifth round, and the sixth round, and the seventh, and the eighth, and the ninth, and the tenth, and the eleventh, the twelfth, the thirteenth, and the fourteenth round. He was behind all fourteen rounds on all three judges' cards. And in the fifteenth round, nothing different happened for the first two and a half minutes of the fight. Mike Weaver went out just to get punched in the nose. Over and over and over, his face was almost swollen shut, but with 20 seconds to go in the 15th round, Mike Weaver started a punch way back here, and boom, he landed it on the temple of John Tate, and it knocked him out. You've seen this fight, haven't you? Boom, he was on the ground, knocked out cold, and with 10 seconds to go in the fight, the referee stood over John Tate and counted him out and held up the hand of Mike Weaver and said, You are the winner and new heavyweight champion of the world. I told you that so I can tell you this. The fight was on a Friday night. The next week on Saturday, they showed it on a replay on ABC's Wide World of Sports. Dun, da, da. The thrill of victory, the agony of defeat. And I watched the fight, and the camera panned in on the ring, and 17,000 people from Tennessee with 14,000 teeth were all yelling, <laughs> Big John Tate, Big John Tate. And I just smiled. And the, rang, the bell rang for round one, and Mike Weaver went out, and he got beat in round one. And I just smiled. And he got beat in round two, three, and four. And I was smiling. And in round five, he got a combination, and Mike Weaver went down to the canvas. And if I'd have been there, you know what I'd have been screaming? Get up! 
Mike, get up. Whatever you do, get up. Why? I'd seen the 15th round. Seeing the 15th round, knowing the outcome of the fight, made all the difference in my outlook on life. I told you all that so I can tell you this. I don't know when Jesus is coming back. I don't know when this world is ending, but I do know this. At the end of the world, you're the winner. I'm the winner. We're the winners. God will be holding up our hands and saying, the winner and champions of the universe are the ones who have followed my son, who have a new identity in Christ. You are children of the king, who have a new identity in Christ. You are the worthless sacrifice of his son and who will always, 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 nothing can separate them from the love of God which is in Christ Jesus our Lord. So our job as the choir comes, as we face the new year, is to remember this celebration Jesus had, remember that he was equipped to go out into a world and be a servant, and remember that we are equipped with the same, same things to serve a dark and dying world. Father, we love you. We thank you that we have in Christ a new identity and a new dignity and a security that lasts forever and ever. And I pray that as people who are Christ followers, you would give us opportunities in this year to serve people who have dirty feet. Father, I pray even now we'd take just a minute and ask, Father, whose feet do I need to wash this week? Is it somebody in my family? Is it somebody in my neighborhood? Is there somebody I work with or somebody I play with? Particularly, Father, I pray that this year as a church we would look for people that need to have their feet washed that don't know Jesus yet. That you'd give us the heart that beats for the lost. That we would understand how you've equipped us to go out into a hostile place and not just survive, but enjoy washing feet. For as Jesus says, I've given you an example that you should go and do as I have done to you.